This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. I was so, I guess, embarrassed a bit at my lack of knowledge about whatever we were talking about. And then we were sharing screens. And then at some point they clicked on a screen that was different than the one they were on. And it was like a Google search of how to talk about XXX. Basically, they had been Googling, how do we talk about this? And I immediately was like, oh, okay. Seems I'm not the only one. So I think that, you know, everyone's just making it up as they go along. Welcome to The Real Reel, where I take you behind the Instagram reel and into the real lives of entrepreneurs, content creators, and anyone who inspires me and may inspire you too. I'm your host, Natalie Barbu, and let's get into it. Hello, Clara Agnes. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yes, I'm so excited to be here and chat with you. Me too. So we realized that we were both from Charlotte, North Carolina, which is really funny because Hertz is a pretty big startup, I would say. You guys have been around for so long. I remember hearing about you when I was in school when you guys were first starting out. And I can't believe I didn't know that the founders were from Charlotte. That's so funny. I'm glad that we made that connection early on. I feel like that could be something that happened at the end. But that's probably why you heard of us, I guess, so early on in our curtsy journey is NC State was one of the first schools that we launched at. So yeah, I remember because I remember hearing about you guys because it was like, for sorority formals and any other sorority events, it was like, oh my gosh, you can rent your dresses to like other college kids and the other girls and other sororities. And I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, wow, that is such a genius idea. Because at first, was it rentals or was it selling? It was rental to start. Yes. Okay. I remember that. I was like, I remember you could like rent out your old dresses. And I was like, this is such a smart idea. And I don't remember if I ever actually rented a dress or sold or like rented out a dress. But I remember so many girls were doing it. I dropped my sorority after only like two years of doing it. So I wasn't in it for too long. I ended in like 2016. So I wasn't in it all throughout college. But I remember when you first came out hearing about it and thinking it was such a genius idea. Yeah. So we definitely, I mean, sororities, that is definitely where we got our start. I was a tri-delt at Ole Miss and my senior year, I was living in the sorority house. So I was living in a house with 70 other women, the same house, which seems crazy. And that's, you know, where the idea came from is at Ole Miss, a really, really Southern school, there are probably 20, at least 20 occasions that you need to dress up for just in the fall alone. And so living in the house, we had group me back then. I would just send out a little group me like, okay, who has size XX black dress or what, you know, whatever I needed. And you had access to 70 closets within minutes, all right there. And that's where the initial idea, it was actually my roommate at the time who wanted to create a Facebook group just to have access, you know, to everybody's closet as we did, you know, not everyone lives in a sorority house. And so that was kind of the initial idea and took it from there. And NC State was definitely one of the, I think we launched at maybe 10 schools that first fall, like LSU, Alabama, Ole Miss, NC State, any school that we had some sort of connection to, a friend of a friend. Or I think at NC State, maybe some of my friend's little sisters were there. I can't remember, but any connection we had, we would call them up and they would help us launch on campus. So that's definitely probably how you heard of us. Yeah. And how did you guys start? I love the idea. I think it's smart because, you know, you were experiencing this rental service before it was ever an app, before it was ever a platform. But how did you start to launch in these 
universities? Like, did you just call someone and was like, hey, I have this idea? And was it an app at the time? Or like, what were you guys doing in the very beginning? Yeah. So the very, very beginning, it was a rack of 500 dresses. We just stood up one night in chapter and was like, hey, next week, everyone bring your dresses if you want to make some money, something like that. Like other trade outs can borrow them and pay you 10 bucks or 20 bucks Venmo. So that's how we got started. We had a bunch of girls literally Monday night chapter, bring their dresses. I got one of those little like Walmart tag guns and we would write their first and last name and their Venmo handle and like a price. And we had them all down there for chapter. And so then we would bring that rack of dresses out the Monday night of chapter if there was like a tried out formal on Friday. And like every single one of them would get rented. It would be like 500 dresses and they would all get rented and everyone's Venmoing each other. And so that is literally where we started. It was just Venmo. It was a rack of dresses in the tried out basement the week before a formal. And then from there, that worked so well. We're like, wow, let's do this at KD, at Kyo. So we would go to other sorority houses. And then we started doing it in the union. And we just went from there. Ole Miss had this business plan competition. They would give you $800 if you won. And so I think that was the first thing we entered. And I think the first year we entered, we didn't win, I don't think. And then the next year we entered after we had started doing the dress racks, we called them like a trunk show. Uh, we entered and we won the eight hundred dollars, and we're like, "Oh, we're rich!" And so that's just where we <laughs> we were like, "Oh my gosh, we have so much money!" And then that's where we, you know, from there started. My brother, who was a year above me in school, was in the computer science program, and he had a friend, Eli, who's now co-founder, and interestingly enough, also my husband now, which is really funny. <laughs> and Eli coded the first app. We called up David, a high school friend who was interested in design. And so he was living in San Francisco at the time. He moved to Oxford, Mississippi to live in my brother's storage unit. Like, wow, (laughs) hilarious. And just started really scrappy from there. And so when you were first doing the trunk shows, was that just you? Or did you know that this could be a business already? Like, did you think this is going to be an app and this is going to be a platform? Or you thought that this would just continue to be trunk shows? So it was really my roommate at the time, Kip, who was the one, I guess, who was really forcing the idea. She's a genius. She worked with Curtsy for the first year and now she's a doctor. So she moved on to different ideas. But I think it was honestly my brother, William, who was the one who was immediately like, this is a business. He's someone we both have been like semi entrepreneurial growing up. It's kind of funny. I never considered myself necessarily entrepreneurial growing up. And then I was talking with someone and they're like, Clags, which my nickname is Clags, by the way. I'm like, Clags, you started at least like 10 different businesses when you were in middle school and high school. And I looked back and I was like, oh yeah. I started, you know, <laughs> some, was it like Christmas cards? I started doing that for one person and then quickly became the person to do everybody's Christmas cards. At one point I was painting people's bathrooms. I mean, there's a whole, <laughs> I did a return business. I love so I it. In general, <laughs> it wasn't the concept to make it some big idea. I think probably in the back of my mind, that's what we were going after. Yeah. I think that if you are entrepreneurial, it leaks out into like every part of your life from when you were a kid. Like you can look back and see it because there are some people I think that they might have an idea of like, oh, that would be a good idea, but there's no execution or there's no desire to like turn it into anything. And I think as a kid, you can see if you had that desire that like entrepreneurial spirit early on, if you actually took that 
leap to start whatever it is you want to start, even if it was like a simple lemonade stand or whatever, you know, like, I think that you can always look back at someone's childhood and kind of see if they always wanted to start a business or not, even if you didn't necessarily say that you always wanted to start a business, like it was there, like your friends were saying. I think absolutely. I got really into snow cone stands. And I was talking with one of my best friends to this day, she was a neighbor growing up. And like, we both would do the most banging snow cone stands. I mean, we would take home hundreds of dollars in like 2006 from these snow cone stands, you know? So I think it is, <laughs> it is interesting. I never, I was like, oh, I, I was not entrepreneurial growing up. And then you, you get into it and you're like, hmm, maybe I was, you know? So I think in general with Curtsy, I think the idea wasn't let's make this into a massive business. The idea was just how can we give other women on campus who might not be in a sorority access to everybody's closet easily, more affordable. It's not sustainable environmentally or economically to buy 20 dresses every fall. And especially when there are other women on campus who have them sitting in their closet. So I think that was just the initial idea. And the need was there. People were so excited by this idea. Yeah, it is interesting, though, it's been cool to kind of see how fashion and resale has changed even just since 2015, 2016. Because when we had that idea, I'd say 80% of people pushed back on it saying, I don't want to wear somebody else's clothes. That is weird. I don't know them. Which now that is, I mean, you get about 10% of that. But I think fashion and resale has grown tremendously since 2016. That's definitely not the first response we're constantly met with. That seems to be something Mm -hmm. that, uh, I mean, it's more mainstream. So less people are concerned with wearing clothes that they don't know the owner of. Let's talk about styling hair because it is a whole production, especially when you are battling frizz. And take it from me, I live in Miami, Florida. It is about to be summer. I really know frizz, but honestly, I would rather be doing something else like booking a spontaneous vacation to St. Bart's or rewatching the Eras tour for like the third time. You know, the important stuff. But who actually has time for frizz? Introducing Way's new anti-frizz cream. It is like a superhero for your hair. It provides immediate frizz control that lasts up to 72 hours. I actually brought it on a trip with me and my friend borrowed it and she purchased it right then and there because it was that good. So how does this fit into my hair routine? It is the best thing I could have done for my hair. I am all about saving time and the anti-frizz cream does just that. Plus the Sydney inspired North Bondi scent is so amazing. You can thank bergamot, Italian lemon violet and more. And as someone who is always concerned about heat damage because I definitely use a lot of heat on my hair, this anti-frizz cream provides heat protection, which is such a big relief. And my hair feels so much lighter and looks smoother after using it. Get busy being frizz free with Way's new anti-frizz cream. It's not just about taming frizz. It also provides heat protection up to 450 degrees, reduces and repairs split ends, quenches dry hair with intense hydration. And according to a consumer perception study, 90% of participants agreed that their hair looked less frizzy after using it. I can definitely contest that. And while you're at it, check out Way's other bestsellers like the leave-in conditioner, which I also use, detox shampoo, fragrances, hair oils, and hair gloss. They're all essential for achieving that salon-worthy look at home. So you can frizz-free up your schedule with Way. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter promo code RealReal for 15% off any product. That's T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code RealReal. 
Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today as it should with Earnin. Earnin is an app that is changing the game when it comes to getting paid. Imagine having access to the money you've earned as you work, not just waiting for payday. With Earnin, you can access up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So think about it. The next time you're planning a special night out, you need a last minute gift for a loved one, or you face an unexpected expense, like maybe a trip to the vet, Earnin has you covered. For me, it's about having the flexibility to handle those surprise expenses that life throws my way. So whether it's unexpected bills or needing to cover rent when things are tight, Earnin gives me peace of mind knowing that I have access to my hard-earned cash when I need it most. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type Real Real under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show, so please don't forget that step. Real Real under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. I feel like also with a lot of people are vintage shopping now and a lot of people are thrifting and it's so much more acceptable. It's not even acceptable. It's honestly like cool now to be like, oh, this is secondhand. <laughs> like when people ask you, oh, where's that dress from? Like you want to be able to say, oh, it's vintage. I thrifted it. It's like, it's a cool thing to say now instead of being like, oh, I bought it at Nordstrom. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that has been so amazing to see. Number one, just for curtsy, because that whole mindset shift of it being weird and kind of frowned upon to maybe thrift or resale or whatever to now it being the it thing, the cool thing. That's definitely helped out curtsy tremendously on a business sense. And then also just in general, I think some of my favorite stories of hearing from users or customers in general who maybe they couldn't afford Lululemon. That's not in their budget. That's what they want to wear. And Curtsy provides that opportunity or any resale platform does to make that a possibility for them. Mm -hmm. And then plenty of people have also just started thrifting as a side hustle where they're professional resellers and like professional, you know, flippers. That's a whole another thing that has started to pop up in the last few years too. Yeah. And when you guys developed this app and you turned it into, you know, an actual platform, how long did it take you from the idea of, I want to make this into an app? I don't just want to have it be a trunk show to actually seeing it on the app store. Or did you launch on the app store? Was it a website at first? Like what did Curtsy first look like when you guys launched as an application? Really bad. It, <laughs> it they always so do bad. though I mean it has to look bad in the beginning like if you're not embarrassed by the first thing that you put out like it's you should have put it out like way 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 before you actually launched <laughs> no exactly exactly you got to get it out there and see if people are going to use it before you spend so much time and money you know crafting it but that's a good question I want to say it was less than a year probably like eight or nine months until the first version was on the app store was that version usable? Barely. People could use it though. And it was basically kind of just a way where you could scroll through and see the dresses. But when you tapped on them, I'm pretty sure it like 
had the girl's number and you could text them and you would meet up on campus and then just Venmo them. It was really like low, low stakes, but that, okay. that was what we started with and people were using it, which was, I think the most important thing was like, okay, we've got some traction. People are interested in this. Yeah. I mean, if people were using it when it was like that, like then you probably thought, okay, if we set up a payment system or like people could ship, it probably would be a lot better. Were you thinking about that, that early on? Were you thinking about the potential of what this could be? Or at the time, were you just like, this is good enough, people are using it? No, I think we were always thinking about the potential of what could this be? We were always thinking, yes, we first started the last few months of my senior year was at Ole Miss. And then immediately it was like, okay, people are really trying to use this app. Sometimes it doesn't work out because it's a really bad experience, but just the app. But I think we immediately were thinking, where else can we bring this? Where else can we launch this? Our first fall was 10 schools, which NC State was one of them. And I think we picked those schools. We sat down and we're like, all right, where all do we have a connection? Where do we know people? Because I think that first fall, most people we worked with were friends, little sisters and friends of friends, little, you know, where all we could, I think we all posted on Instagram. This was pre-Instagram stories. It was pre-TikTok, pre-all of that. And so I think we just used our connections. We texted and called every person under the sun of who knew which people. And that's where we found our 10 campuses to launch at. And then we just, again, it was pre-Instagram ads. There was no TikTok. There was no Facebook ads. And so we just would run these kind of semi-chaotic, hectic guerrilla marketing style campaigns, which you might have seen some at NC State. I'm not sure. Looking back, they're a little cringy. Like we did one that was a parking ticket campaign. Okay. (laughs) So, you know, we found out it was very common. People across every single campus were getting parking tickets. Everybody got parking tickets at every campus and everybody hates them. It's the worst thing to come up to your car and see a parking ticket. And then I don't remember how we got from that to saying, oh, let's make this a curtsy campaign. But we actually had 10 people on all these campuses mail us because everyone could find a parking ticket. A friend had one. They physically mailed us the parking tickets. So we had these 10 campus parking tickets. And David, who's our CEO, co-founder, designer, he handcrafted and personally made parking tickets to match every single campus. The only thing that was different was slight wording that let you know it was a curtsy gift card instead of a parking fee. We had them professionally printed on like the parking ticket paper. And basically we had like our girls Monday night at chapter when everybody's cars would be at the same place, like on campus, they just went and put like 500 or a thousand under everybody's car windshields. And so that was something that was pretty hysterical. That's something where maybe you could say all PR is good PR. People were so upset. Some people thought it was hilarious. So we would just do different crazy campaigns like that, that we could afford, you know, it was $200 of printing. And then our girls would yeah. go do all that. So yeah, that's honestly smart, though. I've heard of so many creative ways to market. And as long as people are hearing about you and talking about you, that's all marketing is. So I think that's smart. I don't remember that. But I just remember vividly hearing your name, like I known the name curtsy for years since college. And then I remember that it was renting sorority dresses. Like that's like what in my head, the first like reminder of what that is. And I, I swear I was one of those people that was like, that's such a good idea. Like, why didn't I think of that? Like it was one of those where it was like, wow, that's so smart that this person started this. Yeah, it was definitely 
the idea of rental versus like buying and selling, the idea of rental is a bit more out there. And I think people kind of grasped that concept, thought it was more unique, which it definitely is. But we pivoted to buying and selling in 2018, I want to say something like that. Like Poshmark wasn't huge yet, but then we initially just pivoted to buying and selling, which and kind of kept our same marketplace, which is kind of how we ended up with Curtsy today of hundreds of thousands of primarily women between like 18 and 30. Mm-hmm. Anyone can obviously use Curtsy. One of my co-founders, his mom is, you know, 50 something and she's bought hundreds of things. But it's definitely like that's who uses us most. And that's kind of where we started. And we're still in that marketplace for sure. Mm-hmm. It's so smart. And at this point, when you were developing this app and you launched it, were you still in school or had you graduated already? When it officially launched, we were seniors when I guess the initial beta version, very loose, was released. Yeah, so we were seniors. Okay. And then after college, did you decide to do it full time? Or were you guys all like going kind of separate directions, having different jobs and doing this as a side hustle? Yeah. So what initially actually brought us out to California was getting accepted into YC, which is a startup incubator. And They'll give you, for anyone who doesn't know, it. they'll basically, it's kind of like a summer camp for startups, if you will. You know, this YC is the name of it. They'll accept X amount of companies. You all move out to San Francisco for the summer. They coach you, they guide you, and then they take percentage of your company and give you a little bit of seed money. And so before we got accepted and applied to that, that's a good question. I don't even quite remember. I actually had a visa. I was planning to go work and live in Australia. That was my dream. I was like, I'm going to go do the working holiday visa. I am a big traveler. And so that's what I was planning to do. Kip was planning to be a doctor. I think it was, that's a good question. I think what made it more real was applying and getting accepted to this YC incubator where they give you a hundred thousand dollars and you move out to San Francisco for three months. We stayed for eight years now. So um, I think that is what made it more real. I mean, we were all young. I was 21 when I graduated. Everyone kind of talks about it being a bit more risky and how did you not get a full-time job? But at the time when you're 21, you're not thinking that far about your future which I think is a bit of a blessing starting something when you are that young. Once you are a bit older, I just turned 29. And so now if I were to start something now, yeah, I would be more along the lines of maybe I keep a full-time job and try something on the side and see see how it works. It's definitely more risky. I think we were just lucky how naive we were when we were 21. Yeah. Me as a 21-year-old, I had no idea what went into or goes into starting a company. I was so naive to the effort and everything that goes into it. So I think that is a blessing that we were all like, all right, let's do it. This sounds fun. Woohoo, you know, and I think it's a lot. And so (laughs) I think it's definitely nice to be naive. So you go ahead and jump in and try it. Because I think once you, maybe you know this now too, now that I know all of the ins and outs of how, I don't know all of it, but once I know a bit more than I did when I was 21, I would be a slightly more hesitant to just jump in heads first. Like the best advice I could give to anyone if they want to start a business is to literally dive in, just start, just start talking to people, start the first step. If you think about it too much, I think one, it's just never going to happen. You're always going to have reasons of why you shouldn't start something. And I also always say that like we, my co-founders and I were very naive in the beginning. 
and of like, how hard can this be? Like, this is, you know, I had this idea. I thought that this was going to be like, oh, I have this idea. I want to bring it to life. It's like a project. I'll, you know, like work with these two guys and it's going to become like, a, you know, people will start paying me. And then that's, it. you know, I just like didn't realize like how much work would go into it. And I never knew what it could become. Like eventually, obviously, you start working on it and you're like, oh, wait, this could actually be a really big thing. And that's when we decided to raise money for our startup. But in the very beginning, that's not what we thought. You know, we were like, okay, this is going to be, you know, a project and we'll be able to bring this to life and it'll become a business. But I just didn't know how hard it would be. I didn't know everything that goes into it, all the moving parts. And so like my naive self at the time, I think I was 24, 25 when I had the idea of Rella. I'm 27 now. So not that long ago. but. I just had no idea what went into it. And so I'm really glad I started like that because like you said, I probably wouldn't have started if you knew how difficult it would be. And it's not a regret. I'm so thankful I was like that. Just whenever you know how hard something is going to be, you don't want to jump in, you know, you want to do something exciting and fun. You know, that's what makes you keep going in the very beginning. Yeah, absolutely. How did you come up with the idea for Rella? And then how did you get from idea to saying, okay, I want to make this a business? Yeah. So I've actually been a content creator for 12 years. So I've been doing social media since I was 15 years old. In 2011, I was on YouTube. And so that whole time I was able to quit my job. I got a good job right after school at a consulting firm and I quit my job to do social media full time because I was like making more money on that than I was at my job. And then I started helping other creators try to, you know, grow this into a business and really grow it into a brand. And that's when I started getting frustrated at all the tools I was using. And I didn't feel like I could recommend anything to the creators I was helping. So I was using notes on my phone, a bunch of spreadsheets, project management tools to like manage all my campaigns and all my content, and my content calendar. And it was just so much. And I felt like all the tools that were out there were either just like content planners for social media managers, like not for people just trying to build a brand, or they were like, just project management tools, which were just generic tools. And it wasn't something specifically for the social media industry or for the creators. And so I was like, why is not like one space where you can just like manage your workflow and streamline your process? Because there are things like that for other industries, but there's nothing like that for creators. And so that's how I came up with the idea. And I really wanted to build it. And I have always been that like entrepreneurial person, I feel like. Like you, I started random businesses when I was a kid, like so many random ones that I would start for a few months and then, you know, go on to the next thing. And I always wanted to like start my own business, but I never knew what that would look like. And so I had the idea. And then, yeah, now we launched like last January, our first version of it. So I look up to, you know, companies like you and founding teams like yours because you guys have been around for so long. And you guys have been really good at it. So like, I love hearing from your stories and your experiences. Yeah, well, we're just making it up as we go along. <laughs> I think that's one thing I've <laughs> that's always good to hear. That's <laughs> reassuring. I, I think one of the things I realized really early on, when we first started, I was 21. And I remember having meetings with people who were in their mid to late 20s. And I was so intimidated. And I had imposter syndrome times a thousand, which I think everybody does in some sense. But I remember some meeting, I can't even remember what meeting it was. I was so, I guess, embarrassed a bit at my lack of knowledge about whatever we were talking about. And then we were sharing screens. And then at some point they clicked on a screen that was different than the one they were on. And it, it was like a Google search of how to talk about XXX. Basically, they had been Googling, how do we talk about this? And I immediately was like, oh, okay. Seems I'm not the only one. 
So I think that, you know, everyone's just making it up as they go along. Google has always been our best friend. When we don't know how to do something, we try to call someone, Google it, chat GPT, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's so reassuring because we definitely feel that way too. I mean, my co-founders are two years younger than me. Like they're currently 25. So we started on Rella when they were 22, 23. And so they were also a lot younger. And it's one of those things where I look up to other companies or I look at other founders and other companies and I'm like, wow, like they must know so much more than I do. You know, like you just think that someone's more established or they're smarter or I don't know, they fit the more stereotypical like founder role and especially in tech. And so I've always like felt that way, but then I have to realize I'll have conversations like these or I'll talk to other founders and everyone says the same thing. Like we don't know fully what we're doing. You know, it's like, literally every day is different. Every year is different. The idea that we started with is not the idea that we're at now. We've gone through pivots. And that's just always nice to hear because I think when you're in the middle of it, you think that you're the only one that's ever struggled or you think you're the only one that's ever been like, oh gosh, I don't know what to do next. And you're not. Like Every single company, every single founding team has done that. And I think that that's you know, that's expected. It's actually would be very strange if you hadn't gone through something like that. Like I would not believe you if you said that. Yeah. And I definitely, it's funny for us. There's definitely other resale options in the marketplace. There's Poshmark, Depop, Mercari. There's a, you know, a ton of resale options. And I think at some point we're definitely on the smaller end of resale apps for sure. But at some point, I don't remember it was, but we realized we always view a lot of other resale platforms as they've been around longer than us. They have more funding. They have bigger companies. We kind of just assumed, I guess, that they would have more knowledge on how to do this, how to continue to build a resale app. At Curtsy, we're definitely not delusioned in thinking that the way resale is today is the way it will be next year or tomorrow or five years from now. Mm -hmm. We're always iterating to make the buying and selling experience seamless and as easy as possible. But I think we also can sometimes look at the larger companies and think, okay, they've got it all figured out. They're, everything they launch, they know why they're launching it and they have a reason to do it. And then at some point, one of the companies who's far larger than us, we realized started putting out features that are exact copies of what we have been putting out. And so I think it's the same thing. We immediately realized like, oh, wow. Hmm. Even though they are 500X our size, they still also are looking at us to what we're doing. And so I think yep. that's, you know, same exact. Everyone's always like, oh, what are the other people doing? Do they know what they're doing? I don't know what I'm doing. I think it's just a common sentiment yep. among businesses, among people, everybody. Yeah, we've actually seen that too with like small things that we've introduced. And we're a very small company compared to any of our competitors, especially in like the content planning, social media, like project management tool space. And I'll see on LinkedIn, like the CEO of a company of a competitor is like looking at my LinkedIn profile. And then I'll see the a few months later that they've released something that's similar to us, like not an exact copy or anything, but similar. And I'm like, was that a coincidence? Or were yeah. they, you know, looking at us for inspiration, which is really crazy, because we are such a small company, like we're a team of six people, we're really small, including like the three founders. And so we don't have as many users as these bigger companies. We haven't been around as long. We're younger and, you know, we're, we're more inexperienced. There's like a lot that goes against us, quote unquote. And then when I see something like that, I'm like, oh, okay. Like that's also reassuring, similar to you when you see someone like releasing something that you just launched. I definitely think 
inexperience can be great in a lot of ways because you haven't been harped on different things you've tried before that haven't worked. You have a fresher mindset. I think you totally have a different set of experiences. So I think for us, we've always kind of used our inexperience or our youth as, all right, well, this is, you know, all the options are limitless. We can do whatever we want. There's nothing, you know, no past experience is going to hinder what we want to try. But I will say too, we definitely call my dad a lot. My dad has been in business for 30 years. So sometimes we have a crazy idea. I'm like, all right, let's call my dad and see what he says. And I definitely think it's twofold, but I think it's really fun to be surrounded by other people who are just as open-minded to trying new things or jumping into starting a company. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. And I mean, you guys have been doing this for seven, eight years now. Do you have any regrets that you've made like in terms of curtsy? Or is there anything you would do differently if you looked back on the past seven, eight years? I would say probably one of the things that was the hardest for us to learn how to do was hiring. And so I definitely don't have any regrets. I think because of whatever has happened in the last eight years has gotten us here. And it's a, been a crazy last three years since the pandemic for online resale, e-commerce for any startup company. So we're alive, we're here. So I think no necessary regrets, but I think anytime you bring people onto your team, I think we definitely in the past have had to let people go that weren't a good fit for X, Y, Z. And I think I've always put that on me or us as a hiring team. We are the ones that brought them on, you know? So I think we've been very lucky and different things we've done and we've moved around and we've started out working from our kitchen for two years in Palo Alto, sleeping in the backyard. My cousin was sleeping in the garage. It was very much Silicon Valley like show. I mean, no huge regrets. I think that's kind of one of the things in running curtsy is we want to leave everything on the table. If at some point we had a meeting maybe like last year and we're like, say curtsy wasn't around in five years, what would we regret not trying? What do we still want to try? And so, yeah, I think just getting better at hiring and learning, I guess, the people ops side of things and bringing on more people. We have been Mm -hmm. incredibly lucky with everybody we've worked with, but I think that's probably maybe the only thing I would say is a regret, just not learning how to do that process more. But outside Mm -hmm. of that, I mean, there's been plenty of times we have had huge failures, plenty of times where we've been very close to running out of money or, you know, all of that, all of your typical, I think any, any startup founder would say we've hit all of that, but somehow we've made it through. Yeah. What do you do when you're faced with those situations of like, oh my God, what do we do next? And, you know, you have a lot of fear. You might, you know, like maybe you're close to running out of money or you're having a something failed that you thought was going to work in the app or the app goes down, whatever, like any big moment when you're like, oh shit, like what do I do next? How does your team operate? Like, are you guys a unified team where you're all on the same page of what to do next? Has there been conflict like that? Or how have you guys decided to move forward in a way that you guys are still here? From the early days, YC would always say there's two reasons a startup fails is you run out of money or founder breakup. I think in the early days, it's very common. And I know of plenty of people who just can't make it work. It's communication. It's kind of like a marriage, if you will, where Mm -hmm. you have these people who you're not getting a lot of sleep. You don't have a lot of money and you have high stakes and high stress and you're trying to make it work. I think we were very lucky from the fact that my brother is one of my co-founders. And then the other two are Eli and David, one we went to high school with and Eli who now is my husband, didn't know him at the time. My brother knew him. Mm -hmm. I think we were just very lucky. We all threw ourselves into a small house in just south of San Francisco by like an hour. 
So we're all like sharing twin beds in this small little house. It's kind of like a camp for a year. We would work all day. We would play tennis together. None of us had any money. We rode bikes around. We didn't have cars. And I think that kind of forces a really intimate connection where you immediately feel like siblings, if you will, with just everybody. You feel very comfortable early on to say, I don't like this idea and this is why, or I don't feel we should do this. And I think learning how to get through conflict and share how we feel about business things early on was one of the reasons we've been thick as thieves since day one. We very much respect each other's opinions and reason behind them. So there have been times where we sit down and I think one of the most pivotal moments like 2018 when rental just was doing really well at big SEC college campuses like Alabama, but not outside of that. We realized we need to make a change. We're, you know, running out of money. We had to lay off everybody else we worked with. We sat down. We're like, what do we do? I think that's where stress is high. But I think making sure you're working with people you respect. And as soon as you, I mean, if you respect everyone you work with, you're going to listen to their opinion and kind of hear the truth behind it. Maybe even if you don't want to hear it. I think in general, we always operate or try to at least in a very transparent and open way. And We definitely try to run curtsy in a way that when we give feedback, we give honest, open, direct feedback. Nobody should be offended by something that we're saying because everybody is here for the same reason. We want to make curtsy work Mm -hmm. and we want to make curtsy continue to grow curtsy. And I think the number one way we kind of make sure we resolve conflicts or get through difficult times is just transparency. And so even, you know, this is more of a funny instance. It wasn't terrible, but like two years ago, I want to say. Eli sent out a test notification that was just supposed to be internal. He was just testing something on a notification on Curtsy. Yeah. And because it was a test, he literally called it Jack Attack. Don't know why. And it was a picture of my cousin's dog. It was just a test to see how the notification worked. Well, that actually went to every single user on the app. And it went to probably 800,000 phones. And you can't send one notification at the same time to everybody because it crashes our server. We're not used to 800,000 people opening Curtsy at one time. So everyone got this notification that was Jack Attack. They slid it open and then Curtsy immediately crashes. And then you open it up and it said, like, your account cannot be found. So we basically had 800,000 people thinking that they were attacked. You know, they're worried about their Curtsy card. I mean, nobody could get into the app. It was a pretty big nightmare for a few days. And I think just getting past that, I think people were really upset about that, rightfully so. But I think we just came out, like I got on the Instagram, we sent out, you know, an email. And even internally, we were like, hey, we messed up. Like, I'm so sorry. You have every right to be frustrated. I'm so sorry this happened. It was not on purpose. We don't have an excuse for it. It's not going to happen again. We're really sorry Mm -hmm. for frustration we caused. Totally understand. You know, and I think that's internally and externally just being honest, open and transparent is probably the thing we've tried to do over the last few years. Yeah, I think with co-founders, because people ask me the same question with like, how do you maintain a good co-founder relationship? Or especially being, I mean, similar to you, I'm the only female founder, and then my two co-founders are guys. And so people will ask me about that. Like, how is it working with, you know, all guys as your co-founders? And I always say, like, honestly, that to me, it doesn't matter. It's like, we all respect each other. We all respect our roles. I know that when I'm talking to my co-founders, they're technical. They know what they're doing with that. Like I'm not going to undermine them when it comes to a question like that. And then similarly, if it has something to do with, you know, the business side of things or what do creators really want to see and what they need, 
you know, they respect my opinion on it too. And we have, you know, disagreements sometimes as any relationship does. But I think that respect that you said is what matters with like alleviating conflict, because if you don't respect someone, then you're just going to kind of like be like, okay, whatever. I don't really care what you say. I'm going to, I'm going to do this anyways. And that's when a lot of tension can happen and fights. And we're just really lucky that we've had a really good co-founder relationship and that's developed into a friendship as well. So we really just like trust each other a lot and respect one another. And I think that's so important because like you said, that's one of the top reasons why startups fail is because of co-founder conflict. And that's just so unfortunate. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I fully agree. And I definitely think being in such, Curtis a small company as well and having that faith and respect and trust in everybody you work with is equally as important for sure. And so you guys raised your Series A two years ago, not recently, but <laughs> had yeah. you raised a pre-seed and seed round before? How did you get it off the ground at first? Was YC your first big check into Curtsy? Yes. We had, you know, the $800 from the business plan competition and then moved out to California. And we had, I don't even remember what we had at the bank. It was not, it was not anything. We didn't know how we were going to pay for our first month of rent. And none of us had, you know, pay stubs or paychecks or anything. And people in California, in Mississippi, you just rent a place, it's $200 a month, no problem. They're not asking for your bank account information and your tax and everything. Out here, met with person after person after person, and you have to, you know, send in all your bank information, your pay stubs from three years. None of us had any of that. And we finally found this woman who was in her 70s. I think Nadine was her name, I believe. And she would rent us her house. She didn't need anything. She said, honey, I trust y'all. I've always done it on instinct. And we're like, okay, great. Maybe you should look <laughs> at our bank account because we don't have anything in there. But yeah, I remember we signed the lease and it was, I mean, it's California. So especially compared to Mississippi, it was crazy expensive. We did not know how we were going to pay for it because the money from YC had not come through yet. It took like two months or something. And so... I guess the money came through just in time. I think we had to bug them a few times like, hey, like we signed the deal. We're here. Where's the money? But that was our first big check. And then we raised a million dollars. I don't even remember now, which is literally, I just said that we raised a million dollars. That's absolutely <laughs> We raised, actually, I want to say maybe we raised 500,000. I think we did two seeds. So I believe, I'm not even remembering this correctly now. I believe we raised maybe 500,000. And then we did a million dollars. We raised mm -hmm. two seeds about a year apart. And then we raised our series A about two years ago, I think. Okay. So it's so interesting, though. I feel like there's no consensus on exactly at, at the time we were raising, I think the second seed we raised was like a million dollars. And at the time, plenty of people would say, wow, that's a massive seed. And then plenty of people would say, oh, we raised a $5 million seed. I think there's just so much just ranges from company to company. And I think that's the hard thing that you've probably noticed is there's no direct playbook of here's no. how to raise money or here's how to raise money in this. <laughs> You're like, yes, <laughs> I think there's, we were very lucky that David, our co-founder and CEO, he's my age, but he went to a year of college and then he dropped out and worked for three years. So he was the only one of us who had work experience. And he had three years of two and a half, three years of work experience and had just moved out to San Francisco. So he had semi connections. And so he was the one, I guess, who knew the most. But even then, I mean, you know this from experience, you reach out to 
300 people and two people reply. Literally, I was listening to one of your podcasts and you said you DM'd a bunch of people and 30% replied. And I immediately, my mind was like, wow, 30% is great. You know, it's just trial and error of trying to figure it out. I think in total, we've raised maybe 12, 13, 14 in total, something like that. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, so impressive. Like I always think raising money is an achievement and it should be celebrated that like you were able to do that because not a lot of people can. But I also always want to add like a caveat that's like, but raising money doesn't mean, you know, you're a successful business. Like you guys have been around for eight years. That's incredible. There's so many companies that raise so much money and then they're out of business in a year. And, you know, or like all of their runway is spent on like the founder lifestyle or hiring way too many people at once. And then they just run out of money and fail. So I'm like, it doesn't equate to being a good business, but I also think it shouldn't be taken lightly because it is like a very impressive accomplishment too. It's definitely, I mean, we have been so close to, you know, any number of failures over the years for sure. And I think that's where, you know, you have to get together with your founders and make the hard decisions. And I think that's probably the hardest thing is, we have a huge connections of investors and friends who've done all of this before at this point now being out here for eight years, which is amazing. But nobody can tell you what to do. Nobody has been exactly where you are before. A few years ago, we were talking to an investor and they pretty much told us to close up shop. They said, you know what? I don't think, yeah, it was in COVID it was years ago. They were like, I don't think that, you know, you have what it takes. I don't think this is working out. And we hung up the phone and we were just shocked. We were like, oh my gosh, wow. Well, we're going to do the exact opposite, you know? And we turned everything around. We pivoted, we did all of this. And, you know, that same person was like, oh, wow. Okay, this is great. Let's hop back on the phone. I'm so interested to hear about all of this. And we're like, what? You just told us we should close up shop like three months ago, you know? So I think trusting your intuition and doing what you think is best. There really is nobody who's been in the, you know, the exact position before. So I'm sure that's been a journey for y'all. Definitely. I can't imagine hearing that from an investor. Was it an investor that that invested in you guys or was it an investor that you were pitching? It is somebody, yeah, we had a relationship with this person. Okay, yeah, I can't imagine hearing that because like a lot of times, you know, you think, oh, you know, they've seen a bunch of startups. They know what they're talking about. They're smarter than me. I think a lot of times we can think that, but we say like no one knows your business better than you do. Investors do not know your business better. Like for them, like it's all about patterns, like what they've seen in the past. And they just apply it to what they think will work in the future with like, if this was successful in the past, then let's like replicate this and they'll do the same thing over and over again. I've noticed a lot of investors do. And a lot of times, you know, that makes for really great decisions, but it does not mean that they are all knowing and that they can predict whether a startup fails or not. There's one investor that I know that was talking to someone and about like their business and she was really harsh about it. She was like, I can tell if a company is going to fail or succeed within three minutes. And like, she was so confident about that. And I'm like, no, you don't. You know, maybe you have a high percentage, but like, you cannot say that as a fact. And she was like, yeah, this company's going to fail. Like immediately, not about Rella, about some other company and like telling them to like, just close and pivot and all of this. And like, you know, sometimes, yeah, you need to move on and you need to close. But I think that as founders, you have to have so much confidence in what you're building. And if like one person telling you to close makes you close down, then yeah, like maybe it would have never worked because you know that shouldn't sway you immediately. But it also frustrates me sometimes when people say that because I'm like, no, you don't know for sure. So I can't imagine hearing that. It's so impressive that you guys were like, actually, we're going to do the opposite. And you did. <laughs> 
we hear you and we, but I mean, it definitely takes it out of you. This is somebody we had worked mm-hmm. with. This is somebody, you know, you're kind of like, oh my gosh, wow. You know, it, it hits you. Like we were not super excited to hear that, obviously. But I also think that does kind of motivate you a little bit, at least for us. We, we heard that and we were like, all right, let's try to prove them wrong. Let's do, you know, and sure enough, we did receive an apology email months later, wow. apologizing for that meeting. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that also is a bit of a motivation to if somebody tells you no, or somebody tells you you can't do it, then you're like, hmm, let me see what I can do, you know? Exactly. Well, thank you so much, Clara, Agnes, for coming on the podcast. This is such a good conversation. I want to like literally do a million parts to this because I feel like I can talk <laughs> to you for so long about this, but thank you so much for coming on. Where can they find you and where can they find Curtsy? Yeah. So Curtsy, if you're interested in resale, we have an iOS app. So just type in Curtsy on the app store. And then we also have an Instagram just at Curtsy and my Instagram. I'm Claire Agnes from Curtsy. Amazing. Well, thank you so much again. And I cannot wait for this episode to go out. Yeah, Natalie, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to meet you, finally chat with you. And I cannot believe you're from Charlotte. That is absolutely crazy. I love it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Real Real. I hope that you enjoyed and don't forget to rate, review, follow, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me personally on Instagram at Natalie Barbu and the podcast at The Real Real Podcast. I'll see you next Monday. Hey there, my name is Renee Rena, and I am the mom friend you have always wanted. I am also the host of the Mom Room Podcast. We publish two episodes per week, a co-hosted episode on Tuesdays and a solo episode on Thursdays. Popular topics include pooping and having sex after giving birth. I have a solo episode where I talk about not sharing a bed with my husband and why that's okay. I hope you'll tune in to these conversations every week. Join us on Instagram at the Mom Room Podcast and start to feel a little less alone in this crazy thing called motherhood. Hey, my name is Lo Von Roomf and I've been working my ass off as a celebrity stylist by day and a podcast host by night. At the Low Life Podcast, it's all about keeping it real. We're talking fashion, beauty, to religion, sex, drugs, mental health. I mean, there's no topic off limits here. And vulnerability is mandatory. You can find my podcast, The Low Life, that's L-O, no W, everywhere and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. New episodes are out every Thursday. We'll see you then.